This podcast does not provide medical advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast. I'm Marianne Matzo. And I'm Charlie Navarrete. So grab your adult beverage of choice or a spot of tea or a spot of whatever makes you feel good, your dessert, relax, and thank you for spending the next hour with us as Charlie and I talk about the end of life. I'm going to be talking about survivor's guilt, and in our third half, we're going to have an interview with Tara Warren, CEO of Tenaciously Teal, so stay tuned to our discussion with Tara. Hey, Charlie, what's on the menu? Well, Marianne, our recipe today is called Mormon Funeral Potatoes, and you can dig up the recipe on our webpage, everyone1dies.org. That's everyone1dies.org. Where's the chocolate? Um, you know, right now it's it's hot, it it's humid. Um, the chocolate is melting. So until we get the refrigerator repaired, uh, we'll talk about potatoes. You know, a okay. ve- a vegetable for all seasons. <laughs> so, um, actually, this was new to me too. I'd never heard about. Uh, funeral potatoes, but funeral potatoes are a potato and cheese casserole that is commonly served by Latter-day Saint Relief Societies as part of the meal they prepare for grieving families to eat after their loved one's funeral. Uh, the dish is prominent in the predominantly Mormon populated areas of Utah and Idaho. Well, if it's Idaho, I guess they don't have to go far for potatoes. In uh, hey. Idaho and may have originated in that region of the United States. Funeral potatoes may be known by other names, such as potato casserole, and is served at other potluck dinners, such as family and church gatherings. Even in those settings, the dish is quickly identified as funeral potatoes. So, throughout the history of the Church of Jesus Christ, members of the Relief Society, and, and it's an auxiliary to the priesthood, have provided compassionate service, including meals, to women and their families. So furnishing a meal for extended family that has traveled you know, long distances to attend a funeral is one way Relief Society women seek to ease the burdens and lend support. The recipe for funeral potatoes may vary from cook to cook and region to region, but generally it consists of shredded or cubed potatoes, Cheese, onions, a cream soup, and sour cream. Mm, Sounds good. But no chip dip. Interesting. Uh, um, (laughs) And sour cream. Where was I? Oh, yeah, sour cream. So it is often topped with crushed cornflakes or breadcrumbs. Carpe diem. Every day is a great day to eat carbs. I agree. Yes. So... Please go to everyonedies.org. That's every the number one dies.org for the recipe. And also to send us your own recipes to share with others. Also, we appreciate your questions, jokes, and anything else you want to tell us. Within reason. You can email us <laughs> at everyonedies.org. Please join our Facebook group, Everyone Dies, and remember to rate and review the podcast. Molly, our Twitter wench, 
is hoping you contribute to her happiness by following us on Twitter and reposting her tweets. Uh, so remember, you can find um, our recipe at our different platforms. And there we go. Marianne, hey, Charlie, what's up? I heard that you had a fan who um, wanted to share with you their chocolate likes. Would you be speaking about Betsy? Betsy Wurzel? I would. Yes, I know. I know you, Marianne. You already told me in advance. So, of course, it's Betsy. <laughs> Hi, Betsy. So, um, there's a shout out to Betsy. And if you write to us and let us know. Oh, wait. She likes extra dark, dark chocolate, right? Extra dark That's chocolate. That's her thing? Yes. That's her thing. We're going to have to get um, candy bars. Everyone dies candy bars. Isn't that a great idea, Charlie? Oh. Yeah. yeah. Every... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So T-shirts, hats, and candy bars. That I'm sounds like a winning it. conversation. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So in our second half, we're going to talk about survivor's guilt. Um, I did an interview with Tara Warren, and as we were talking about what she went through with um, stage four ovarian cancer, she mentioned mm -hmm. this idea about survivor's guilt. And I thought that that would be a really good um, topic for us to kind of touch on. We have some additional resources for you on our webpage, everyonedies.org. It's E-V-E-R-Y, the number one dies.org. So if you want to know more about survivor's guilt, please go over to the webpage. Survivor's guilt is a traumatic or trauma-related guilt that stems from the belief that you could have or should have done, felt, or behave differently during or after a traumatic event. Survivor's guilt is a type of self-guilt that sometimes takes place after trauma. People may feel guilty for surviving or avoiding some type of harm when others did not. This can occur in a variety of life-threatening situations, including car accidents, wars, natural disasters, and illnesses. And, you know, like, for example, in the case of COVID virus, you know, 20 of you and your friends go bowling and 19 get sick and you don't. Perhaps you have some survivor's guilt because you didn't get sick or maybe not. I don't know. But that's one example. Now, in the case of cancer, cancer can be conceptualized as a multidimensional uh, trauma because it carries a threat to the life and to the body integrity, it can result in disability, disfigurement, pain, loss of social and occupational functioning, and can result on dependence on others. A sudden onset of illness, perceived as a loss of control, can also be part of the cancer experience. Um, there's that chronic nature to cancer, and also that anticipatory nature of the threatened cancer, that once you've had it, there's that fear that it's going to come back. Oh, they're going to come back, sure, yeah. Yeah, and so the uncertainty and the intangibility may also have traumatic consequences for cancer survivors. Now, unlike traumatic events of an external nature, you know, a car accident, let's say, the cancer experience embodies an internal threat that can be perceived by the person who has it as inescapable, especially when there's scars and pain and new symptoms physical limitations, diagnosis and treatment procedures that 
you know, for some people it's every three months to have scans. For some people it's every week to have chemo. And those routine follow-ups of appointments, they all serve as reminders that this experience is here and that it can trigger a traumatic stress response. So how would you know if you have this, if you, if you have the survivor's guilt? So some of the symptoms. Psychological is feelings of guilt, nightmares, flashbacks, irritability. I'm always irritable, but I guess. Um, <laughs> you? I no, no, no. Where, where, where do you get that from? Where, gosh, where do you get that idea it, from? I'm it sorry, came what? From, it came from God. My irritability is a gift from God. Um, feelings of helplessness, uh, lack of motivation, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. So those so, are. So you mean, do you mean it's like someone who just. Sound like a regular citizen who lives in New York, but go on, continue, please. Well, there's certainly an, that element of um, trauma. Right, I'm sure living in that big city. Um, physical kinds of symptoms are numbness, difficulty sleeping, stomach aches, racing heart, and those are symptoms of anxiety and depression too. So you have to look at your symptoms in context of the things that you yourself have experienced. Mm -hmm. So what are some examples? Um, what are some examples? So, oh, thanks, Charlie. Sure. Um, so this was actually originally described in the 60s by psychologists when they were working with um, survivors of the Holocaust. And it since then, it's been applied to a number of people in situations since that time. Because if you think about the millions of people who um, died in the concentration camps, those that survived are left with that feeling of, well, why me? And, and feeling guilty about their survival when so many other people had perished. Right. Also, um, individuals who lived through AIDS, the AIDS epidemic, have described feelings of guilt related to their um, own survival, while others, including friends or family, have died. Survivors of other illnesses may feel a sense of guilt when they've recovered. Uh, following a flood or tornado, people may feel a sense of guilt and wonder why their homes were spared while their next-door neighbor's homes were destroyed. Mm. Survivor's guilt doesn't necessarily have to involve life or death situations. For example, workers may feel a sense of guilt when others in their, country, in their company have been fired or laid off. This can be particularly pronounced during mass layoffs when large numbers of workers lose their jobs while a few retain their positions. Those who are left might feel that they were spared simply out of luck rather than due to their merit, their skills, or their efforts. So if you find yourself experiencing feelings of guilt following an aversive event, there are things that you can do to manage these emotions. So some self-help strategies that you can find may find effective is remember that these feelings are normal and common. Experiencing guilt doesn't mean that you're guilty of doing anything wrong. Sadness, fear, anxiety, grief, and yes, guilt are completely normal responses in the aftermath of a tragedy. It's okay to feel happy when you're with your own luck, while at the same time mourning the fate of others. The second thing you can do is focus on outside factors that led to an event. Shifting your focus 
uh, on the external variables that created the situation can help you let go of the self-blame that contributed to your feelings of guilt. You didn't create the tornado. You didn't create an economic downturn. You didn't create the cancer. Those are things that are external to what's going on. Third, allow yourself to grieve. Now, we have a podcast that we did a few sessions ago about grief. Go back and listen to that. That could be very helpful to you. It's important to acknowledge that people who were lost are people who died and allow yourself to mourn. Give yourself time and take things at your own pace. Next, do something positive. Whether it's for yourself or for others, take those feelings that you're feeling and direct them toward making a change in the world. Sometimes just doing simple things for another person can help alleviate the feelings of guilt. And I think you'll hear that in that interview that we're going to do next with Tara Warren. Next, practice self-forgiveness, even if your actions were responsible for harm to another person like in a situation of maybe driving drunk. Learning how to forgive yourself can help you move forward and regain a positive outlook. But but Marianne, with something, you know, if you're you're driving drunk and you cause an accident where someone dies, I mean, that seems, I don't don't see how, how, how can you forgive yourself for something like that? I mean, you've taken someone else's life based because you were, what, irresponsible? put it mildly i mean how you were you were impaired you made a bad decision and do you do you really need to suffer for the rest of your life if you go back to what we talked about just now about doing something positive saying i made a bad decision Mm -hmm. and that bad decision resulted in the end of a life and so I survived that. I survived for a reason. Let me take this negative, horrible experience and turn it into something as positive as I possibly can. Even in our Catholic religion, Charlie, we were brought up with going to confession. No matter what we did, we were told we could go to confession and God would forgive us. So if God can forgive us, why can't we forgive ourselves? Is that a rhetorical question? or? Well, I mean, I guess because we can't ask God how, how he, she does it. But that's what we're taught. That's the, that's the belief of, of our religion, and I think that's the belief of many religions, is that you can't, you can't go through life with that burden because then there's, there's more than the, that one victim. There, you're that victim, too. So, but you're still alive. So, where? But then, where is the difference between, let's say, someone, um, uh, um, you know, I mean, feel, feeling the guilt of, as as you as as you've defined it as survivor's guilt, and someone who is uh, suffering from post traumatic stress syndrome. I mean, where's where, well, where's where's the line between the two? Well, actually, there isn't. If you if you get into the actual um, psychology literature, mm-hmm. they really are um, 
they really are one in the same. Oh. Because if you look at if you look at post traumatic stress disorder, um, so let's say a cancer survivor is post traumatic. You know, cancer is a traumatic stressor. Right. And so um, they are part of that same package. And there are, along a continuum, degrees of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I had that serious illness, and I didn't feel guilty for surviving, but I did feel like, okay, why did you survive? <laughs> part of mine was I looked at my added up my hospital bill. It was over a million dollars. And I thought, I know, right? (laughs) Um, But I was in the ICU for over a month. But I thought, okay, uh, what have I done to be worth a million dollars? And what can I do to be worth a million dollars? I figured I survived for a reason. What is that reason? And make the best of it. So instead of being, you know, frightened all the time and guilty that, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield paid a million dollars for my life, Mm -hmm. I said, what do I need to do to kind of justify that? And I'm sure that that comes out of our Catholic upbringing. But nonetheless, um, I channeled those feelings into into creating a a project that was real important. I think real important and long lasting. And so what I'm sorry, I don't remember what project was that. Um, I was involved in starting the uh, supportive care program at our cancer center. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And so um, you know, that that's still there, it's still seeing patients and it's making people's lives better. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, I guess, you know, we, we look at those traumas like, like you're, you know, like you're saying, well, you know, if somebody has a car accident while driving drunk and somebody is killed, it's a horrible situation. But how do you then say, I need to heal from this? And what do I, what can I do to heal from this? Everybody, everybody, in my opinion, deserves forgiveness and an opportunity to heal. And I, I think what, what you were saying, what you just said, you know, you ask yourself, yeah, that you, you have to, yeah, you have to talk to yourself. You have to ask yourself what's, you know, what, what's going on here. Yeah, because you can go to all the psychiatrists you want, but at some point you need to look in the mirror and say, okay, why am I, yeah, I, I hear it. Yeah, why am I feeling this way? What What brought me here? What can I do about this? What can I do? turn this into something positive but you know yeah exactly you have to yeah examine self-examine yeah and and then you know we're we're going to talk with tara next but to understand these feelings and listen to what tara warren the ceo of tenaciously teal has to say about this i mean she had stage four ovarian cancer and how did she approach and how does she approach her her feelings of survivor's guilt and what is she doing with her life? So today we're with uh, Tara Warren, who I met, gosh, a long time ago. Do you remember how long ago it was, Tara? It was in 2013 when we met. So, so, so it's been years. a long time and it's been just a 
delight to watch the work that she's doing and the impact that she has on people who are living with cancer. Um, when you're diagnosed with a terminal illness, it kind of brings an immediately reshuffling of your priorities or a life-threatening illness or a life-limiting illness. Actually, from my experience, any kind of illness. Um, but it also brings with it a wealth of new challenges and new concerns. And you were young, you were what, 29 when you were diagnosed with ovarian cancer? Yes, I was 29 years old. And you had just gotten married, if I remember? Yes, I had only been married a few years, diagnosed um, about three years. And yeah, I was 29, felt like I had my whole life ahead of me. It came as a complete shock. So do you want to, you want to talk sure. about that diagnosis? How did, how did you find out that you had ovarian cancer? Uh, so I had had trouble uh, for several years prior to my actual diagnosis. I uh, had a lot of pain. Um, that was my main uh, symptom was I was just kind of constantly in pain and I uh, had gotten several diagnoses of having ovarian cysts and uh, eventually went to a specialist and he did an exploratory surgery and that's where they found uh, the tumor and that had originated on my right ovary and by the time they found it, it had spread um, throughout my peritoneal cavity and um, it was just literally, as my oncologist said, everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. Uh, and so, yeah, my life kind of stopped um, for a minute there. And, and I remember being told by my oncologist that I was going to die from that disease. And, I mean, obviously it was... It was devastating. I felt like I was young and healthy and, you know, I tried to eat right and exercise and um, overall felt pretty good besides having the um, pain. But um, so, yeah, it, it came as a complete shock to um, my family and I when I received that diagnosis. And so you were at the Stevenson Cancer Center and um, you had a wonderful oncologist and you went through a lot of treatment and then, um, oh, and a lot of Thunder basketball games, right? <laughs> yes, yes, and, I do like my yeah. Thunder. And at what point did you say to yourself, well, you know, this disease may may be the thing that ends my life, but it isn't going to do it soon. Well, I think, you know, um, being only married a few years, um, it, uh, that was something I really struggled with was, you know, what was my husband going to do uh, without me? Um, and it was particularly uh, hard for him because he had lost his father to melanoma uh, when he was four years oh, old. And so when we were dating and, uh, you know, 
through our marriage, he had always talked about how his third passed away. Uh, his first 33 when he passed away and he always had this anxiety of getting to age 33. Mm-hmm. And so literally November 3rd, 2012, he turned 33 and the first week in December of 2012, I was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. And so I remember him telling me, oh my gosh, it's not me. It's my wife that I've been needing to worry about all these years. And I just really felt really bad. Mm -hmm. you know, for him and he'd already lost his dad and I didn't want him to lose his life. And so, um, that was, a, I think a a catalyst to me fighting so hard and, and going through every single treatment. Um, you know, there are many days when I was scheduled for treatment and I was really sick and looking back, I may not have needed to go to chemo that mm-hmm. day because uh, I was so sick and weak, but I just had this um, determination in me uh, to keep going. And so I did, I had um, six months of intraperitoneal chemo, which for your listeners is uh, means they would fill my stomach up with chemo made me very, very sick. And, and I was also on um, clinical trials for PARP inhibitors and um, also maintenance chemo for 10 months after my interperitoneal chemo. And the interperitoneal Today, I still have no evidence of disease. So the interperitoneal chemo, and don't want to interrupt okay. you, but for listeners, um, it's really like a, a ball of chemo just pumped into your belly, you know, not your stomach, but into your, your peritoneal area, the outside of the organs. And you have to kind of rotate like a sort of like a chicken on a rotisserie, right, Tara? You have to keep moving it around. Mm-hmm. And so it's, um, mm-hmm. it certainly is what we would call or what I would call big girl treatment. I mean, it's not, um, it's not a simple treatment and it is very aggressive. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, when I was in a treatment plan with my oncologist, Dr. Walker, uh, she made it a point to, um, you know, describe how to Neil chemo would be. It was an option. Uh, me and of course at the time you're taking that all in to account receive that first treatment you don't realize truly how sick Mm -hmm. you are it's going to make you yeah I think that that's a good point to make is that we tell people so here's what's going to go on and I always wonder how much of that truly gets absorbed is that you're People are focused on, I need to beat this. I need to manage this. I need to, you know, survive. And so, sure, whatever whatever you're going to do, that's fine until you're in it. And then you say, holy crap, 
I didn't really realize what this was going to entail. Was that your experience? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, my mom uh, actually, you know, went through breast cancer treatment prior to my diagnosis and I was a caregiver for her. I remember how sick she was and, um, you know, my uncle and my cousin also had cancer and I remember how sick they were. I remember, you know, again, Dr. Walker telling me how sick I was going to be, but until you actually get that first round of chemo, you, you don't understand unless you've been there. People that have been there, they Mm -hmm. know. Uh, but yeah, I, I remember that first night just thinking, wow, like you could just it killing your mm-hmm. body you know it's killing cancer cells but it's also killing the good cells and uh it just it was really hard really hard and i met you kind of <clears throat> if i remember correctly kind of toward the end of your chemo or at least you were feeling better because you, you were going out i think the day i met you you were going to a under basketball game and as you went through your recovery you know I don't know that it's so much a recovery from the cancer but a recovery from the chemo right um where did you come up with the idea that you wanted to make other people going through this feel a little better (laughs) well I I've always had a heart for people in need. I, uh, you know, got my master's in social work. I worked in child welfare for 10 years and I just had always been really attuned to people and always wanted to help people. And when I was going through treatment and experiencing how difficult that was and what it's doing to my mind and my body, um, I recognized that there were other people through the same thing. Uh, I just also noticed that I had a, a really strong support system, um, you know, really great coworkers, family, friends, and just reaching out to me, supporting me. And when I recognized that there were people going through treatment that didn't have a similar support system, uh, it just really burdened my heart and I just felt like I needed to reach out to people and you know just kind of let them know that uh, someone cared you know there was a lot of people in chemo just by themselves Mm and that really was a you know harsh realization um, for me to witness because you know and you're going through a chemo treatment, you're uh, likely there for about eight hours. And I, during my infusions, I would have people in and out, people calling, texting. And there was someone right across from me who didn't have anyone the whole time. Mm-hmm. And so I really felt led to be like that person for someone to just um, support them and, and just show kindness. You know, I, I recognize all know like how much a, a little act of kindness or love can do um for someone for someone's heart and um I just 
really felt a need to do that for people who were fighting because they were going through such a difficult time um, and they needed just to be reminded that someone cared about them. So, so how, kind of started it off small. How did oh. you decide what those, yeah. those kind of acts of caring would be? Um, so when I was in the hospital after my surgery, it was distributing my flower arrangements because I had a lot and there were people, you know, in just these stark, um, sterile hospital rooms that didn't have one card or one flower arrangement. And so I started doing that. And then as I was going to treatment and seeing people by themselves and thinking, how, what, what could I do? Um, I started looking Emo bag with me. Um, I always had hand sanitizer, always had lotion, chapstick. I always had Gatorade. Um, always was drinking green tea, um, mint tea specifically helped my nausea. Um, I always needed Kleenex and just this kind of arsenal of, uh, cancer fighting materials. And so I, you know, started, putting some of those things in, in little gift bags and writing a note to people and just kind of being aware of my surroundings and um, looking for people who needed uh, some encouragement on any given day. And yeah, just passed them out. I'd bring like five or 10 with me and um, it just kind of kept growing in fact, I was in my last semester of graduate school when I was diagnosed and, you know, made the decision to keep going, mm -hmm. uh, even though I was given plenty of advice to not, um, but I was, had already spent two and a half years going to grad school and was ready um, to graduate. So um, my last intraperitoneal chemo was three days before my graduation. Oh my and so my <laughs> yeah, my cohort um, wore teal honor cords because oh. uh, teal is the ovarian mm -hmm. cancer awareness mm -hmm. color. And they used that money to buy like 50 care packs. So my last interperineal chemo, I brought these 50 care packs and I was really excited because I was going to be able to give a care pack to everyone mm -hmm. there in the treatment room um, and pass them out like I always had. And I, I was really, really sick that day. And in fact, that day I couldn't even walk on my own. They brought me in in a wheelchair, brought me out. And I, I couldn't even move during that whole um, eight hour infusion. I was just so sick. It just really, it told my friends and a lot of the started passing out the care packs and for me. And then as they were passing them out, people were coming back telling me stories of, you know, someone who had received one and how much it meant to them. And then people were shopping by my room and nurses were crying. <laughs> I was crying like, um, and at that point I just, I realized I saw the impact just a little care pack made, um, I've been, if that makes sense. It does. So 
um, they were seeing the impact and I was seeing, um, you know, how much that, um, to people through, through them. And it, and it means not only something to the patient who's getting the chemo, the person getting the chemo and their family, if they have any, but I know from personal experience, I was uh, the oncology nurse practitioner, um, at the veterans hospital and I would see you and your volunteers come through to, you know, the veterans and many of them are also alone and they don't have money for extra things. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times, you know, somebody's socks would be all wet from something or whatever. And, you know, you'd go down to the canteen and buy another pair of socks or, I had one patient once who's, who didn't want to get his port accessed. And I said, what do you need in order to let us access that port? And he's like, well, I'd like an orange pop. And I said, if I buy you an orange pop, will you let us? <laughs> yes, I will. <laughs> and so, you know, you trot down to the canteen and buy the orange pop. And so, you know, those, those are things that, that nurses will do for their patients. It's not many people know about that stuff. But to see you and your volunteers to come in with, you know, those nice little extras and how happy it made the veterans and how it made them feel um, valued was just so heartwarming mm -hmm. for my soul as, as the nurse taking care of these people. And then at the Stevenson Cancer Center in um, supportive care there were so many times that people didn't have money for gas to get into the cancer center for treatment and we you guys you know moved on to giving out gas cards and other things that made it possible for people to get treatment and i think that that's something that our listeners don't really get unless you've either been in that situation yourself or had a family member in that situation is that there are a lot of barriers to being able to get treatment, especially in a rural community like Oklahoma, where, you know, we have one um, NCI designated cancer center in the entire state. And you can have people coming in from miles and miles and miles for treatment. And if they're coming in every week or every two weeks, it's a lot of money, right? And those gas cards make all the right. difference between being able to get the treatment and not being able to get the treatment. Have you found that, those stories? Right. Yeah, I remember being shocked at that, uh, you know, realization that people were literally not coming to get life-saving treatment, the gas to get there and how many times do so many of us just pull up to a gas tank and put gas in our car and think twice about it. But then people literally don't have that free to put gas in their car. And, um, you know, we started helping with transportation needs when I got a call from the social work department at students and cancer center in 2000. We were well into the care pack program and on the social and um, asked if I had ever thought about doing gas cards and I, I had it. I didn't really know that that was a need. And she was um, explaining um, 
you know, just several stories, cases of people that were not um, coming to treatment. And it may not even just be treatment. It may be a follow-up with the doctors or, you know, the doctor or a blood draw or a CAT scan. I mean, when I was going to treatment, I would be at the cancer center three or four times mm-hmm. a week. Right. And like you said, in a community like Oklahoma, people are driving in from so many rural parts of the state. Uh, you know, in fact, we helped a lady this week. She's driving four hours one mm-hmm. way um, from Broken Bow, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. um, into the city. And um, anyway, so we, yeah, I, I just, I, I was shocked at, um, you know, the need for, transportation or the details. like you so you know without a doubt our, I'm sorry you you were saying that you were in a phase one clinical trial right um I was on the PARB okay. inhibitor so it was a chemo okay. pill but, but um, those clinical trials so. will require again and a lot of things that people don't know is that they will require CAT scans every so often this and that every so often well if your insurance is not going to pay for those CAT scans then you have to pay for those CAT scans or not be in the trial. And I had one patient once who, um, Mm -hmm. in the very beginning when we started our clinic, we weren't exactly, we we were taking patients before we had the money drawer set up. And um, we said, well, just don't worry about it right now. You have the copay. And she's like, oh, good. I can put that toward my CAT scan. And I said, I'm sorry, what? And she said, Mm -hmm. I'm saving for my CAT scan. And I thought, isn't it hard enough? I mean, wow. you know, and I've been a nurse here for 40 years, you know, I'm thinking to myself, isn't it hard enough to have cancer without having to save for your CAT scan? It's just, it's mind-boggling right. to me. Right, right. Um, and I know, yeah, there's so much need that I don't think people under, truly understand Um and I, I still continue. I've been now uh, doing Tanisha Disley Teal full time, and there's still needs that, that come up that uh, are just way heavy on heart. Um, you know, uh, there's a lady recently. She's in, in palliative care. Uh, she's end of life. They're they're no longer able to do mm-hmm. treatment. She couldn't get a hospital bed. And her room was upstairs and the bathroom was upstairs and she can't hardly walk. So you can imagine, you know, the need um, that comes, that all that entails. And then as I was talking to her and and arranging to help get her um, some Depends and, you know, um, some bed liners and the hospital bed, all that, I, I just felt led to ask her, is there anything else that you could use or really need? And don't be afraid to say whatever. I don't know if we can help you with, you know, just anything, but I I will certainly try. And the first thing out of her mouth was, I would really love some fresh fruit for some smoothies. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, again, that's another thing I I take for granted. Sometimes just going to the grocery store and, and buying what sounds good to me and, and my husband I did have that luxury when I was going through treatment we I, I know. 
we did help. I know that in, we bought a lot of fresh yeah, air. And I know in, um, in palliative care or supportive care at the cancer center, there would be so many times that people would be coming in and losing weight and we would talk with them and have the nutritionist talk with them. And they'd be like, I don't have any money for food. You know, I have a choice of my medicine, you know, getting myself here, you know, the bus ride here or food. And um, the social workers started keeping sort of a non-perishable food closet where we could get a grocery bag and, and give them some food. And, um, and, in, and when you walk into the, you know, you know, our cancer center, the Stevenson Cancer Center, it's a gorgeous building, you know, and I think if you just sort of look at that and look at the technology and look at the treatments that are done there, we don't stop to think about these people who, when they go home, really don't have all that much. Right, right. I mean, even this specific case that I referenced with the fresh fruit, when we were dropping stuff off, you know, she came out and these pants that were way too big for her and the shirt that had all these holes in them. And um, I, you know, mentioned something. So do you have pajamas that fit? Because you're losing so much weight. She's so skinny. Mm-hmm. I'm so, so skinny. She, this was all she had. Um, so and probably thinks course, that that's the least um, of her problems, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Not even, you know, too worried about it. But, um, then she gets a pair of pajamas that fit like that does wonders mm-hmm. for your just being comfortable and confident, um, as much as you can in that situation. Does the need that you see, Tara, ever, one, overwhelm you, and two, scare the crap out of you in terms of, gosh, that might have been me? Um, yes. Overwhelm, yes. Um, because there's so um, much need, mm-hmm. and... There's so much cancer. Um, And then the second question, I think about it a lot because there's definitely um, there's definitely um, sorry, survivor's guilt is a real Mm -hmm. thing is what I'm saying. Can you talk about what that is Um, for the listeners who don't know? Yeah, so, I mean, essentially, you know, what the title um, describes, it's when you survive, um, in this case, cancer, um, you feel a little guilty um, because, and that guilt comes from seeing other people who are still fighting, maybe they've never been able to um, get the news that they have no evidence of disease or maybe they're going through recurrence um, of cancer. You feel a little guilty um, because in my case, 
I have been extremely lucky um, to have a stage four ovarian cancer diagnosis into one uh, be declared med or no evidence of disease. And then two, to at this point not have had a recurrence mm-hmm. um, after six years is truly remarkable. And so you would think you can just be very happy in that state, but um, if you have any level of compassion, I think you're going to experience survivor's guilt because you're going to feel a little bad that you've been able um, to have a, um, I want to use the word smooth. It hasn't been smooth. Um, Nothing about cancer or survivorship is uh, necessarily smooth, but um, again, I've been very lucky um, in my diagnosis and fight. And so uh, what's next for Tenaciously Teal? What are you, um, what are you plotting? Cause I know you're always plotting something to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, we are staying busy with a grant program that helps, you know, with needs. And then we have a separate financial assistance program just for transportation and groceries. Um, you know, we're, we started out distributing care packs just in Oklahoma and now we mail them nationwide and we're just seeing a huge influx in requests. Um, I mean, we're getting about a hundred care pack requests a week, give or take. Um, yeah. And those are just, you know, people reaching out, um, from all over, um, the nation and, um, we're sending care packs out and, you know, we don't have any like new programs or, or new plans necessarily right now. Um, we're just kind of, um, trying to see how we can keep expanding out of, you know, in Oklahoma and out of Oklahoma, um, and meet the needs in you know, a creative way. Obviously with COVID-19, we, um, one of our other programs is we do like brave shave parties for women facing hair loss from treatment. Uh, we haven't been able to do that, uh, you know, cause you would get people together and friends and family and support systems to come and support the cancer fighter and as they shave their head and what have you. Um, but we've gotten creative with that and done little brave shave party packs um, people during this time. So uh, that essentially is, everything they need to host their own brave shave, um, at their home. Um, and so that's been kind of a fun little pivot, um, to be able to still support women during that process, um, in a safe way during these. That's a great idea. Unprecedented time. Um, I interviewed, uh, Rochelle, Rochelle Converse the other day for one of our um, programs and she was, lamenting that she had her outfit all ready for the fa- for the tenaciously teal fashion show and it had to be canceled she's holding oh. on to that outfit so you do a you do a fashion show i know <laughs> and that's a fundraiser right yes 
Yes. Yep. We uh, this third was going to be our fifth care packs and cocktails, or it is a fundraiser, and then um, we do a fashion show of cancer survivors, and it's really fun. Um, it's not your traditional fashion show. You know, there's not a um, MC saying this lovely lady is wearing, you know, whatever. It's more of a pick your song you want to come out and dance to and feel empowered and, and strong mm-hmm. with, and um, it's just a really fun experience and we were very sad that we had to cancel this year we were expecting about a thousand people Um, so it's grown a lot we started in a house in downtown Oklahoma City with like 60 people and then yeah our fifth year we were gonna we were shooting for a thousand and, and I'm and I'm sure hopefully we can I'm get sure that. you know that it means something to people, but I thought I would share that with you because, you know, in the course of another interview, somebody's like, and you know, we were looking forward to that because there's a support group, the Hope Support Group for Women with um, Gynecological Cancers that I worked with for a lot of years, right? And that, and right. you would come in and they would make care packs and they um, are still very invested in in your work and in being models, so. Just so you know that they really care about that. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, thank you. Um, now, if people want to donate to your organization, I know your um, webpage is ttl.org. So it's ttel.org. Is that the best way for them to get through to you? Uh, yeah, that's... Um they can reach out to us there with any questions. Um, they can request a care pack for themselves or a loved one. Um, like I've said earlier, we will mail that out uh, to any state um, in the U.S. Uh, no charge. There's, um, it's free to request a care pack. And you're doing appreciate. Um, yeah, you're doing excellent, excellent work, and your your survivorship is um i think really an inspiration for people that people can see okay here's somebody who's had stage four cancer and you know you were fortunate to be at the stevenson cancer center you're fortunate to have joan walker as your doctor because she fights like a girl like anybody right right? um and you've you've had um a lot of gifts and you are so generous with turning those around. You really are an inspiration to people. And um, we want to encourage you with your work and, um, and hopefully too, you know, there's, there's the other side of it is that there are times with stage four cancer and sometimes even with stage two cancer is that it becomes a life-limiting illness far before people are ready. And there's a lot of information that people need um, in terms of how do I negotiate that system? You know, like you've learned how to negotiate that system. I worked in the system, so I know how it works. So that there are things that people can learn um, and that, you know, we can teach them. And so, you know, listening to podcasts like this and 
um, really educating yourself makes you stronger. That's part of how your muscles build is that you say, what is it I don't know? What is it that I need to know? And it helps you go through that system and go through treatment if you have information, right? Right, right. Yeah, it's empowering, right? Um, the old saying, knowledge is power. And that's very true. And when you're first diagnosed, there's, you know, a lot to learn uh, for sure. And it's a, a whole new world. It really is. It's kind of even a whole new language. And we we did a podcast recently on um, how do you hear bad news? How do you go to the doctor and hear what it is that's being said and how to ask the questions and how to advocate for yourselves. Things that, you know, you can get to be even my age and never have had to do. So um, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of ways to help. And, oh, did you ever, (laughs) I told you a long time ago, did you ever do a care pack for people with oral cancer? So we brought, we, when we would get like donations and stuff for the um, bio mm-hmm, team yeah. and mouthwash and stuff, we would bring that to the VA because I remember our conversation, which was, it, it was alarming. Um, and, you know, something I didn't know is that there were so many veterans fighting, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it Desert Storm? Um, de- there was a specific was war. De- Desert I felt Storm, that was, yes with the burning of all the garbage and the oil and yeah. Well, the other side of it though, for the mouth cancer piece is um, also the, um, you know, the same thing that's the cause of cervical cancer in women is also the cause, the HPV, which is also the cause for the oral cancer in men. So it's not any more, you know, it used to be, you'd see every now and then, um, an HPV-related oral cancer. It is really frequent now um, because people, you know, there's a vaccine, right, for the girls to prevent the um, cervical cancer. But boys can uh, should also get that vaccine to prevent the HPV-related oral cancers. And a lot of people don't know about that, and I've we haven't yet done a show about that. But you know, not to get off the topic, but if you've got kids who have not yet been sexually active, if they're boys or girls, they should have that HPV vaccine. It's three vaccines. I think it's like a month apart. But Joan Walker, her, your doctor, used to always say if people would just get that vaccine, we could get rid of cervical cancer. So the correlate for right. women is, is the oral cancers. And um, there's what they do for that is radiation, which is... People, a lot of times I found that people would say, oh, but I just have to have radiation and be like, sister, you have no idea what happens with the radiation, you know? Mm. So um, that oral care is just vital because think of what you do with your mouth, you know, like, yes, swallow, you eat, you know? And if you have that, you know, tissue that's been so aggravated with the uh, radiation, and you're not taking care of it well, you're not going to be able to swallow and you know, you end up having to get a feeding tube and that kind of thing. So it's, it's getting mm-hmm. to be a much um, 
more frequent. And I bet you if you ask the head and neck people at the cancer center, they would tell you the same thing. So just so the listeners know, whenever I would see Tara, wow. I'd say, we really need something for head and neck cancer because there's you know, like specific <laughs> yeah. things, you know, to, to keep the mouth moist, soft toothbrush. Because again, people who don't have money and you say, well, you need to go buy a soft toothbrush. You need to go buy this product. You need to go get this. It's like, you know, yeah, but I don't have the money to do that. So. Right. Th- that's my right. ongoing um, nag at Tara about head and neck cancer. <laughs> I'm retired from the VA, but I can still bug you. We're going to do it. <laughs> do a specific care pack. Yes. Stay on um, me. Maybe that's the next step. Hey, now that I'm retired, I can help you do stuff. So if you decide you want to do it, if you, <laughs> you decide go. you want to do it, let me know. I will help you with that. Tara, thank you. Uh, thank you. Thanks for your support. Thank you for listening. Please stay tuned for future episodes of Everyone Dies. Our thanks to our executive producer, retired Major General David, our producer Sandy, John, our technical advisor, Molly, our Twitter correspondent, and our friends, family, and our loyal listeners who are supporting our work at Everyone Dies. This is Charlie Navarrete. And I'm Marianne Matzo. And we look forward to talking with you soon. And remember your Shakespeare. Thou knows tis common, all that lives must die. See you next time. Remember, every day is a gift. This podcast does not provide medical advice. All discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.